What a privilege to be able to behold and honor our God together in song, and, and now we get to do it in Scripture. So take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Philippians. We'll be in chapter 3, looking at verses 17 all the way down to chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians three seventeen to 4, 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As I read this text, and especially that last verse, I can't help but recall memories of going to the beaches of my home state there in North Carolina with my family. And as a child, just bobbing up and down in the waves of the warm water. And this inevitable thing just happened. And I never really knew why. But I would start off in front of my family. And before I'd know it, maybe minutes later, I found myself what seemed to be hundreds of yards away further down the beach. It was such an innocent thing. I just didn't know like what happened. It was like I'd stepped through some kind of a portal. (laughs) And then later I would learn exactly what was going on. There was a a scientific explanation uh, to what was happening. (laughs) It's called a rip current. Not a rip tide, despite the Vance Joy song. It is a rip current. (laughs) It's this powerful pull. It's the water attempting to break through a sandbar, and it just inevitably pulls you. It's interesting, once you know that it's there, you feel it, and you can actively try to resist it. And so I also would know the sensation of getting myself into that deeper water and trying to plant my feet firmly in the sand and still feeling that pull. And unless I was consciously aware of what was going on in that particular moment, every single time I'd end up somewhere way down the beach. And as the French would say, c'est la vie. This is life. There's this tendency 
no matter what we endeavor to do, to somehow drift at some point or another. We start off with well intentions of being in this particular place and doing that particular thing, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves years later far away from where we ever originally intended to be. I think of practical expressions of this like your physical body, for example. <laughs> uh, you may be able to recall the, uh, the chiseled physique of your high school years and then compare it with the more round and softer version of yourself now. And you kind of wonder, like, what happened? It's a drift. It's a current. This kind of pulls you that way. Maybe you've seen this tendency to drift in a relationship. What started out as something passionate and strong and intentional then kind of floats along to something amicable and tepid and accidental, and then a few more years pass, and then all of a sudden everything now seems bitter and distant and irreparable. It's a drift. It's a rip current. Drift can occur in institutions as well. It's a well-known phenomenon in business, especially in the nonprofit world. It's called mission drift, where organizations, well-meaning, wanting to represent Christ in some way, shape, or form, start off with a stated mission, and then it progresses to be 30 to 50 years later, and what seemed to be a distinctive Christian entity has now become nothing Christian at all. Case in point, the YMCA. It's a great place to work out, but I don't think you're going to hear anything about Christ. <laughs> Or you could even take something as, as, um, as reputable as Harvard University. It started off as a school for training pastors. And the name of God and the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ would not be found on that campus today. And so too, a subtle drifting can happen not only in institutions and with our bodies and in relationships, but they happen in our own hearts as we who have intended to follow Jesus, like kind of plant a flag when we're baptized and say, I will follow Jesus. He will be the center. He will be my vision. I will behold my God. And then ever so subtly, we drift. The passion wanes. The, the focus gets a little fuzzy. The, the scriptures once enjoyed can end up being ignored or endured. The, the prayers that were once so passionate become so perfunctory. A passion for the gospel and seeing the name of Christ advance around the world drifts into passivity. And the church can even become less of a family and more of a formality. And if our human hearts can and do indeed drift from the enjoyment of Christ, how do we stand firm? How do we stay put? How do we resist what seems to be the inevitable rip current, the drift? Having concluded his own testimony of ongoing faithfulness to Christ in chapter 3, verses 3 through 14, Paul has, in our passage today, begun telling the Philippians how they can stand firm in Christ as well. And what he says to them, he says to us. Keep in mind, 
He has given stalwart testimony of one who has planted his feet firmly in the soil of Jesus. This guy has not moved since his conversion. I mean, he's given a beautiful testimony. And he has stayed faithful to Jesus in the most difficult of times and in the most difficult of ways. And just like we saw in chapter 1, you, you kind of begin to think like, oh wow, this is for the super faithful. This is for the ultra-Christian. And then Paul ever so subtly switches his pronouns. You'll notice in verses 3 all the way down to verse 14 that he is using I and me and mine, and it makes you think that he's just talking about himself. But then, in verses 15 and 16, he switches up the pronouns from I and me and mine, first person singular to first person plural. Now, he's transitioning to talk about us. We. And you know what happens by our text? He's gone from first person singular to first person plural to second person plural. Now he's saying, you, you all, you stand faithful. I've been faithful by remaining focused on Jesus Christ, but this isn't just an apostle thing. It is an everyone thing. And so this is us. This is you. We all should be endeavoring to do this. And what I love about Paul is he doesn't just command it and drop it. Like, all right, stay strong. You better bury your feet deep if you're not going to get carried away in the current. He actually tells us how. He tells us how. Nobody wants to drift. Notice how he concludes the passage that we read today, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, in light of all this other stuff I've told you, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. And notice those four letters that come next. Stand firm thus in the Lord. He's saying, in this way, in the way that I just told you, this is how you will stand firm. And so we see here, even though we're surrounded by the pressures of an outside world, that we actually have instruction on how we can do this. Here is how you resist the rip current. Here is how you stand firm in your faith. This is a strategy. It consists of three steps, and it's something that I think all of us could walk out of here and actually remember. Those are the best instructions, right? The ones you can remember. So to help you remember, I want to give you some points up front that you can be looking for in the text. Steps two, resisting the rip current that pulls us away from our firm foundation. The first is looking at Christ-loving examples, verse 17. The second will be looking out for Christ-opposing counterfeits, that is verses 18 and 19. The third will be looking to Christ coming in power, verses 20 and 21. Looking at, looking out, looking to, don't worry, we'll fill in the blanks as we go. First step for us to fight against the inevitable drift is to look at Christ-loving examples. Notice verse 17 again in your Bibles. But brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, does this not blow your mind? It seems almost unchristian for Paul to actually say, not just hypothetically follow Jesus, but he actually 
looks these people through the proverbial eye in this letter and says, follow me. Who in this room would dare ever say that to another? And yet Paul's got the chutzpah to be able to say it. In fact, he not only says it about himself, but he even commends, and this is interesting, not just him as super apostle, but he says, also follow the example of others who have been faithful in these ways. So as counter-Christian as it may seem, Paul is actually saying if we're going to resist the riptide, or excuse me, rip current, that will push us away from the firm foundation, we will actually have a, a view of other people who are doing it well. And contextually, what does it mean to do it well? Because everyone in this room is going to have their own conception of what a great Christian is. For some of you, it may be a really nice person, a really loving person. For some of you, a great Christian, somebody worthy of imitation, would be someone who is very disciplined, someone who gets up early and stays up late reading their Bible and praying. For for some of you, I mean, we all have different conceptions, and yet we have to hear when Paul says, follow my example, we have to remember the example that he set. And what is that? There's basically two things that, that Paul has modeled up to this point. When we're looking for an example to follow, first we're looking for somebody who is passionate about their relationship with Christ. That's what verses 3 through 14 were all about. He's saying, I am consumed with Christ. I am following after Him. I, I am all about Jesus. And because of that, second, we're looking for people who are disinterested in self. Passionate about Christ and disinterested in self. Notice that Paul here says, not only follow my example, but he says, follow the example of others as well. Well, who are these others? Well, has Paul not already in this letter given us the commendable example of a couple of other brothers? I mean, just look back, if you will, to the end of chapter 2, and you see in verse 19 down to 24, the example of Timothy, and then you see in verses 25 all the way down to verse 30, Epaphroditus. Why did Paul cite these guys as examples? Because they loved Jesus and they were willing to sacrifice themselves. So if you're looking for a role model, let's say that we actually buy into what Paul says here, and we walk out of this place today and say, you know what, if I'm going to remain faithful, I need to look to some human examples. What am I looking for? It's not just who you think you naturally connect with. It is whoever you know that passionately loves Jesus and is willing to die to self. Those are our examples. We have, of course, the example of Paul that we can look to in Scripture. We have the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Of course, we have the example of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We have these historical examples, of course. But I think that the principle that Paul is giving here, like, actually pertains to today as well. Soon as he expanded it outside the circle of self, his own self, he's giving us a precedent that there will be other people down through history who will be exemplary in their passion for Christ and in their sacrifice of self. So where do we look? Well, I think a source for looking would be through church history itself. There are certain individuals that we can look to and tell, like, wow, this guy really loved Jesus. He really died to self. And hence, friends, the value of historical Christian biographies. (laughs) 
If that's not part of the the diet of your Christian reading intake, I would encourage you to inject a couple of those into your reading list this year. There is something sanctifying about studying carefully the life of another person who has faithfully walked after Jesus. But I don't think this is even the primary expression of what Paul has in mind here. I think Paul actually has in mind you and me looking around this congregation and trying to find people who love Jesus and are willing to die to self and say, I want to be like that. I think that we're actually supposed to model this, as crazy as it sounds, for one another. Say, all right, well, who do I look for? Well, I don't know. When you actually think through those two categories of who really loves Jesus and who's really like dead to self, who comes to mind? I pray that it would be some elders and some leaders and teachers in the church, deacons, deaconess. That's certainly what we're called to be in positions of spiritual leadership, exemplary. But I know that that's not always the case. And before you think too critically of those who are in positions of leadership, I would encourage you to think of yourself. Are you in any way a model of this Christ-loving example and death to self to others? (laughs) This is what Paul is calling us all to. All of us are to stand firm. All of us are to be exemplary in these ways. And so this is just the normal way that we learn. Friends, in this day and age especially, human models have a role to play in every single sphere of life. Why would it be any different in the case of our spiritual growth? I say in this day and age because I was just talking to someone the other day and they were telling me about the benefits of uh, teaching my kids like how to fix things and repair things around the house. And the, the guy dated himself. He didn't even realize it. He said, yeah, what I did was I actually got all the instruction manuals of all the different things that we use around the house and gave it to my son and told him that he needed to read these so that he could know how to take care of everything in the yard. And I interjected. I'm like, dude, who reads instruction manuals anymore? YouTube videos. I YouTube everything. Now, the downside of that is I forget everything. I, like, I have to look it up. I forget how to change my air filter. I'm like, oh, I need to watch a YouTube video on that. But why is that so popular? Why does that supersede people like stacking up instruction manuals in their closet? Because we learn by imitation. It's just the way we work. And Paul called onto this way before modern advertisers did. He said, hey, You want to learn something? You watch it. You watch other people do it. Does the Christian life sometimes seem complicated to you? You're like, man, I have no clue what I am doing. (laughs) I keep reading this book over and over again. I I, I just don't feel like I'm making any progress. Keep reading the book, but friends, I would encourage you to find somebody who is doing it well. Learn from others' example. Will they do it perfectly? No. I'm not telling you to slavishly follow anyone, self-included. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But he still says, follow me. He still says, find an example. And so, we resist the rip current by looking at Christ-loving examples. But we also resist the rip current by looking out looking out for Christ-opposing counterfeits. Notice how Paul transitions here 
from the Christ-loving example to the Christ-opposing counterfeit. He says in verse 18, for here's why you need to find some people to look at who are doing this well, because for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul saying, uh, Philippian brothers and sisters, you're going to have to find some faithful people to intentionally look to because you are being inundated with negative examples. I think this is something that we fail in our own culture to realize. We think that there are really good Christians, and then everybody else is neutral, and then there may be a few people who don't like Jesus. What Paul is saying is there are a few people who are following after Jesus faithfully, and there is a whole host of people who hate Jesus, hate his name, and will try to pull you a different direction. Stop thinking everybody's neutral. He says, you better lock your eyes on the right folks, because if you just start looking around, you will drift with everyone else who is opposing Christ. You say, Justin, historically speaking, like, who are these opponents of the cross? I mean, are these like some organized atheists and agnostic groups that would sit and picket outside the church at Philippi? I don't think so. I think if you're reading the text carefully, you'd be stunned to know the identity of these individuals Paul says, there are many of whom he has often told them and now tells them, listen to this, even with tears, that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why would Paul be weeping about these particular individuals? Notice he says there are many, not all. He's not talking about society as a whole. He has a specific smaller group of people in mind. People who it seems in some way have defected. People who were at one time presumably part of that Philippian fellowship who had then went out from it. Why? What is it that compelled them to leave the fellowship? What is it that caused them to like uproot themselves and float away from that firm foundation? Notice verse 19. It gives a stunning description of their destiny and the way that they live. It says, their end, these enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. All right, now let's ask ourselves a question. Who then is these enemies of the cross of Christ? Here's how you know. In very staccato-like fashion, Paul's going to list off four things briefly. Here's the first thing you need to know about them. They're not middle of the road. Their end, in the end, is destruction. Friends, this is the language of perdition. This is what we know as, in other places, hell itself. Whoever these people are, they're not just kind of mediocre about Jesus and will one day end up in heaven. It says that they will end up in perdition. They will be destroyed by the righteous wrath of God in the end. So whatever they are, the rest of the things better better matter to you. Eternity's at stake in this. He says, okay, we know their end is destruction. What else is true of them? He says their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. I think the first thing that comes to mind when I read this is that of somebody who is a glutton. I would just think of someone who just can't get enough of food. Uh, No conviction intended for anyone who really loves food. I do too. 
But he says it's their God. If you broaden out the metaphor, I think that Paul was actually talking about people whose highest passion in life is to satisfy their physical desires. All they want to do is to feel good. If I were to use the modern scientific language of the day, they live for a dopamine response. The pleasure sensors in the brain. If they could somehow feel good through something physical that they do, whether it be food or drugs or sex or gambling or games or sport or whatever, they want to do it. Their God's their belly. This is going to stand, by the way, in stark contrast to those whose God is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we know that their end is destruction. We know that their satisfaction comes from anything they can do physically with their bodies. And then he continues, and they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. Man, I don't know, this sounds familiar to me. People who have totally dedicated themselves to things that the Scriptures consider to be shameful, and they're proud of it. We even have, in our culture today, a Pride Month. Right? In which the things that the Scriptures have said are shameful, people actually glory in. There's a flag dedicated to it. But the text here isn't just talking about that particular expression of sin, although it'd be easy to target that. It's talking about anybody who is proud of the shameful things they've done. I think of just the locker room or college uh, dorm conversations of guys who tell of their Friday night conquests. They glory in their shame. They're proud of the ladies that they have supposedly connected with. As if that was something to be proud of. And here's the last way we know who these enemies are. It says that their minds are set on earthly things. The, the word uh, minds set is the same word that Paul has used earlier when he says think think about certain stuff, it means to focus. It isn't just intellectual awareness. It is your focus. It is your drive. It is your purpose. You know what their purpose and drive, the point of their life is? It's earthly. It's some type of earthly win. It could be money in a bank account. It could be the expansion of a business. It could be notoriety and fame in a particular sphere. It could be some type of self-accomplishment. But their ultimate end goal is something that could be considered in the earthly realm of things. And he says, when you put that together, you need to know that these people, however well-meaning they may be, whatever connection they may have had to the church at Philippi, they are enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. They are trying to actually pull you down. I don't know why we're so stunned by this. For some reason, we have been deceived into thinking anyone that actually raises their hand and says, I want to follow Jesus, will actually follow Jesus the rest of their life. When the Scriptures warn over and over and over again, there will be many who will call on my name who he will one day say, I never knew you. 
Have you ever considered the parable of the soils? It's been resonating in my mind of late because Jesus gives four different examples of people who will hear the word, and he says the first group, they're going to reject it outright. But then he gives two, count them up, two different examples of people who will supposedly receive the word and then ultimately reject it. The first one is the, the, the shallow ground hearer. This is someone who sees it and they say, yes, sign me up. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. And the first time things get hard, they're out of there. And then the second one is the person who says, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And then suddenly through the years, the thorns and thistles of life, the cares of this world, really the cares of this world, the stuff of earth creeps into their heart and it chokes it out showing that they were never really one of his. There's only one group out of the four that actually received the word because they bear fruit to the end. And yet we think that the parable is just of the two soils. There are those who reject Christ and there are those who receive Christ. You know what, friends? We need to wake up. There are people who will receive Christ. Listen to this. They will receive Christ in this church. They may get baptized in those waters and they may depart one day and you're going to think like, what in the world happened? I'll tell you what happened. Jesus said it would happen and we need to watch out. We can't know. You can't know. You just have to keep watching the fruit of someone's life. An older, wiser pastor told me one time, I was asking him, I was like, how do I respond to someone who says that they want to follow Jesus? I said, because I don't know, like, what's going to happen in the end. We all have heard these horror stories of kids being baptized at, like, seven and eight years old, and then when they reach 14 or 15, they just go, like, hog wild and away from Jesus, and they thought they were Christians the whole time. Like, I said, how do I actually, like, mitigate against this? He says, I would encourage you to respond this way to someone who claims to follow Jesus. Hallelujah, and we'll see. I say that of anybody these days. Hallelujah. I'm so glad you want to follow Jesus, and we'll see. We'll see. But for us, friends, Paul says, look, there's going to be so many of them that it's going to overwhelm you, and you're going to feel this tendency to drift. And so you better look at some faithful examples You better look out for these Christ-opposing counterfeits. And then thirdly, you'll need to look to Christ's coming power. Look to Christ's coming power. Verses 20 and 21. But notice the contrast with those who set their minds on the earth, who want to satisfy their own bellies. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Do you see the contrast? So so you've got these enemies of the cross who have somehow at some point aligned themselves with the church, but were clearly only living for themselves at this point. And what are they all about? They're all about the satisfaction of their physical desires. They're all about their earthly goals and gains. And he says, in contrast to that, it's almost like a eat this, not that. I mean, it's total stark contrast. He says, there are us who have a citizenship in heaven in a different dimension than what takes place here on this sinful earth. Uh, we have a different allegiance, a different loyalty. They are loyal to themselves. They are all about me. But there's a group of people who are all about he. 
They were about the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of looking to the next meal or the next sexual experience or the next deposit in their bank account, they're actually going to look to Jesus to bring about the hope that they ultimately long for. Why? Because they are ultimately citizens of heaven. That word citizens is the same word that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And I reminded you there that in this particular historical instance, what we have is a group of people who were all about Rome, but guess what? Guess what? They're not in Rome. (laughs) They're in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. Rome is in Italy. Rome is the epitome in their eyes of like the just awesomeness. Like if there was a great place to live, it would be Rome. And so this was a Rome-loving city. In fact, they even adopted Latin as their official language, even though it was actually a Greek place. Uh, they, they resurrected actual, I mean, yeah, resurrected like statues of uh, Roman emperors like in their midst. And the whole reason for this like infatuation with Rome is because they had actually had several Roman soldiers settled there kind of as a retirement community. Basically, what had happened is some guys fought for Caesar Augustus. They did a good job. There was no room in Rome. He wanted to honor his soldiers, and so he parked them there in Philippi because it was a place with some great natural resources and even a veritable like gold mine. It was in a popular destination. It was on a main road, and so a lot of Roman citizens get planted there. But the Philippians in and of themselves, listen to this, and sorry for the nuance, but hang with me. They're not Roman citizens. They're just normal Greeks. And so they actually long to be part of Rome. I mean, they know themselves to be a colony, but they they wish that they were really a part of, of the entity that rules all things. Now, with that in mind, keep in mind what Paul tells them. He says, look, you are citizens. You are a part of the entity that matters, and it is not Rome. He says, you are looking for a savior, a soter in Greek. The same word that the Caesars would use to describe themselves, a savior, the savior. I mean, this, I mean Christianity intentionally robs the language of the day to say, you thought that this political ruler would be the savior, but we are telling you that this Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one that will bring about all that you desire. Paul says, this is what you are looking for. This is where your hope ultimately lies. In a Savior, the Lord, which is the name Yahweh that we were referencing in Isaiah 40, Jesus, His human name, Christ his title, the one who would come and write all that was wrong. This is the one we're looking for. This is the one that will fix it. And what's he going to do? This is interesting. Because I think if if I was writing this, I'd be tempted just to stop there. But Paul has something more concrete than just Jesus showing up. Notice this. He is actually going to talk about what Jesus will do when he gets back. And he contrasts it with the whole body impulse that these enemies of the cross were so obsessed with. Notice verse 21. He says, this Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to 
himself. Do you see what's happening here? These people, these uh, enemies of the cross, they were so obsessed with their bodies and, and they wanted such earthly satisfaction. What Paul actually reminds them is Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rule and reign, but he's going to do something else. He's going to recreate the human body in such a way that it can be what God always intended it to be. I think sometimes we think, probably because of a lot of popular Christian literature, that when Jesus comes back, he's going to eradicate everything physical and we're just all of a sudden going to have this like spiritual ghostly existence somewhere. And yet the concrete hope actually of the New Testament is that Jesus died physically, rose again physically, and that we will have bodies like him. And what this text is actually saying is all this bodily stuff that they craved, we will truly and fully experience. There's this interesting book. It's kind of weird and crazy, so I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. (laughs) But C.S. Lewis, one of his more thought-provoking works is called The Great Divorce. And in it, he actually talks about physical existence and its importance. And I seem to remember him using this phrase, you know, we use a phrase in our own day when we say that uh, so-and-so was a shadow of their former selves. Lewis says, we are shadows of our future selves. There is something more concrete. There is something more real. There is something more satisfying that is coming. And that is when Jesus himself, the one who had the power to subject all things under him, will recreate, reconstitute our bodies for perfect fellowship with him forever. I don't know exactly all that that means or what it looks like. If you get a different nose or a body shape or whatever. (laughs) All I know is you will be even more human than you already are. The things that you think you may be missing out on physically in following Christ, the text is saying, no, you will not miss out at all. He will actually fill in all the gaps of what you are missing right now. We await a Savior, one who can actually do something, by the way. Friends, there is something more stunning than an American political leader on the horizon. I know you don't expect political commentary from me, and I don't often give it. But i got to be transparent. It's been a pretty disappointing week to be an American. You say, just where do you land on the issue? I'm just telling you, the whole thing is a hot mess. And you know what? I'm not that old, but I'm beginning to notice a cycle. Every time Christians get a conservative political leader in, they're all happy and relieved. And what happens is the pressure is off. Because now they're thinking, oh, things aren't going to be that bad. And then when it switches back to somebody that's not that, everybody thinks the world's coming to an end. But here's what happens every time. I notice this tendency in which people begin to cry out for the return of Jesus more. Like they recognize finally in those moments, man, we had the wrong Savior. I backed the wrong horse in this one. 
It wasn't blue. It wasn't red. It was King Jesus. That's who my ultimate hope is and should be. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. Do you know who's ruling and reigning at this time? Nero. Go read a Wikipedia article on him if you want to find out about a devastating rule and reign. And what is he saying? He's saying we as Christians, we have hope. That we're actually excited not about the next emperor or the next president, but we are excited that at any moment the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to save. He's going to transform. He's going to make an actual difference. The same God who actually took everything and put it under his authority is going to be the same one who recreates our physical existence and makes it what God always intended it to be. He says this is our ultimate hope. So how then do you stand firm? How then do you resist the rip current? Well, you, you look to Christ's return. You see that as your ultimate hope. If you begin to look at things earthly as the ultimate hope, you will be gravely disappointed. Friends, this um, all gets concluded in chapter 4, verse 1. Notice the affectionate language here. I, I learned something from Paul. Sometimes we think that, uh, that the effective leaders are, are hard-nosed, non-relational people. But notice how Paul talks about these people. He, he, his praise for them and his appreciation is effusive. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, by implication, whom I love, you're the ones that I love. He doesn't just say you're the ones that I love and that you're my family. He says you're the ones that I long for. Could you imagine if I told you that at the door on the way out? You'd be weirded out. <laughs> oh, I crave you. <laughs> and yet Paul sees these people as so much a part of himself that he's even willing to say, I crave you. You are my beloved. You are my family. You are my longed for. You are, notice this, my joy and my crown. My win, he's saying this to the Philippians, the win for me is you. It, when I think of eternity, I think about you. I think about, about the work that God's enabled me to do in your life. And to those people, with that level of affection, he says, not, not in a, again, not in a, in, a, in a mean way, but in a compassionate way, stand firm thus in the Lord. Notice he ends the chapter, technically begins for one, but it's the conclusion of what he was saying. The same way he began it. He began in chapter 3 saying, rejoice in the Lord. This is what I want for you. I want you to find your greatest joy and your delight in Jesus. And then he gives his personal testimony. He turns that testimony toward them and says, do the same thing. And then he sums it up and he says, in the same way, I want you to stand firm in the Lord. You know, the, the scriptures repeat this over and over and over again. I never noticed it, I, I, not until studying this week. I didn't notice it. I mean, you, you have chapter 4, verse 1 of Philippians, but listen to Ephesians six eleven. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13 of cha uh, chapter 6 in Ephesians, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground or stand firm. Same thing. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 18, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
Uh, Philippians 1.27, earlier, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then 1 Corinthians 16.13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. You're, you're noticing a theme here? Like, this is like our responsibility. Paul is assuming that there's this force, and it's pushing us away, and we have a responsibility to dig our feet in and stand. And so the natural question is, well, how? Just try harder? He gives concrete advice. And this should be a takeaway for you. First, look at Christ-loving examples. You see people who have remained faithful? By the way, I just want to give a plug for the older members in our congregation who have been doing this a really long time. Look to them. You have something to learn from them. By the way, that's, that's why I kind of like personally fight so vehemently against age-based stuff in church. 20-year-olds don't need to hang out with more 20-year-olds, no offense. They need to be with people who have walked with Jesus a really long time, and I do too. You want to stand firm? Find a good example. Look at Christ-loving examples. But also look out. Friends, look out for Christ-opposing enemies. It is real. It has happened among us. Paul says it with weeping. I'm not going to try to work up emotion with you right now, but I did ask myself, when I think of those who have been part of this congregation in the few years that I've been here who have defected and walked away and decided to satisfy their own bellies and their own lusts as opposed to staying faithful to Jesus, I did naturally wonder, why, why don't I cry more over this? Like, what is my problem? I think part of it is because we are inundated in a culture that manipulates our emotions so often that it just gets hard to cry at anything. You can't watch but so many like major tear-jerking movies and then not have your heart eventually harden itself to some way and to protect itself. So even though tears may not be flowing from my eyes right now, I can say with all the heartbreak within me, it pains me. Nothing is worse for us than when we see someone not only come to this place and become a part of this fellowship, but then rip themselves away. And you know that it's happened if you've had any history here or in any church. You know those people who, who prayed with you and, and who loved you and who served with you, and yet they, they went their own way. And Paul says there's many. And the peer pressure, friends, is stacked against you. We are not in neutral territory. And so you better look out. Negative influences abound. And that's not even to speak of what we open ourselves up to through television and internet and social media. But the current's strong. But we finally need to look to Christ coming in power. I don't know where your hope has been the last two months, but today may be a really good day 
to put it back squarely on Jesus. Your Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why, friends, we so often sing those timeless words. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's our prayer today. It's my prayer for you.